Thank you. And thank you, Amy. That was wonderful. Good morning. Good to see you again. Where you been? Nice to have you back. It's an opportunity this morning to spend some time in the Word of God. A lot of information in your bulletin. Make sure you read it carefully. Events taking place. A lot of fall ministry starting up over the next few weeks. So make sure you take advantage of that. Sign-up sheets all over the outside back there for community groups and just a lot of other events. Please make sure you read those carefully so you don't miss out on a thing. Just some great opportunities to learn and grow in your relationship with God. The guys that are doing the car cruise this week said they need some pies this week, and I like uh, raspberry, just in case you wondered. Have sermon notes in your bulletin. I encourage you to take them out this morning as we begin a new series that I am obviously extremely excited about. I hope you gathered that yesterday on Phone Tree. If you do not get Phone Tree, let us know. We can get you on it. If you don't like being woken up on Saturday morning, let us know. We can certainly take you off. But we'd love to let you know what's going on so that you can be prepared for that. Do any of you have any of those people in your life who always seem, no matter what the situation or what the circumstance, have something to say? Or at least feel like they need to say something? I have a friend who always says, everybody has the right to hear my opinion. And that's true. There are a lot of people who seem to know exactly what to say in any given situation. And others that seem to have something to say no matter what, even if it doesn't always fit. And then there are, of course, those of us who just love to hear the sound of their own voice. I found through the years that when I watch people working with others through a crisis, that normally they'll fit in one of four categories. Some people really do know the perfect thing to say. No matter what the circumstance or what the situation, they know the right thing to say. Others feel like they have to say something, so they do, even if it doesn't always fit. Some honestly don't know what to say. And some say very little. Their gift is their presence. They're there to cry with you, laugh with you, and love on you. I'm not sure which of those categories you fit in. I really do wish at times, for my own sake, to be really honest with you and vulnerable for a moment, I really do wish that I always knew the right thing to say in every single situation. Sometimes it's really hard. If anybody comes to your mind over the last few moments, I want to take a few moments this morning to introduce to you the man we're going to spend some time with throughout this entire fall. His name is Peter, one of the first few disciples that Jesus called to leave their nets and follow him. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you assume that it happened in that particular moment, but if you go back to John, John actually gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the first time Peter met Jesus. Actually, his brother Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And then he heard Jesus. And one of the very first things that Andrew thought is, my brother needs to hear this man. My brother needs to meet this man. John the Baptist was amazing. People were following him by the groves. Thousands came to hear him, but then Jesus arrived on the scene. And Andrew, whatever the circumstances may have been, heard Jesus speak. And the very first thing Andrew thought is, I've got to make sure Peter hears this. I've got to make sure my brother, my friend, hears this. And so he introduces him to Jesus. If you know anything about Peter, he could come across as one who was always the very first one to answer any question and the very first one to jump to any challenge. Always seemed to have something to say and finding out that times it wasn't always the best thing. 
One of the most well-known moments came when Jesus discussed his death and crucifixion after the years of following him. And he said to them, I just want you to know right up front, you're all going to scatter. You'll deny that you ever knew me. Peter was the first one to speak up. Maybe they will, but not me. Maybe they'll all do it, God, but I'm telling you, Jesus, I'm with you no matter what. Only to be the one that denied Jesus, cursing like a fisherman, saying he never even knew the man. I've got to believe that none of that surprised Andrew. And I'm sure none of it surprised Jesus. Both of them saw incredible potential in Peter. That they knew would eventually come shining through at some point or the other. And obviously, as we'll read in a few moments, you'll see that it does. As a matter of fact, when Jesus first met Peter, when Andrew brought him in, his name wasn't Peter, it was Simon. And when Jesus first met him, he looked at him and saw something that possibly Andrew saw, but certainly I doubt that Peter saw. And he said, your name's no longer going to be Simon, it's going to be Peter, which means a rock. <laughs> I've often wondered what Peter thought of that. I don't feel like one. Uh, I haven't always been one. Appreciate what you see. And I'll take that name. I hope I can live up to it. You have people in your life who may be loud and impetuous, but you know have so much potential underneath all that pretense. Andrew did. As a matter of fact, I don't find it unusual that when crowds gathered one day to hear Jesus, and they came by the thousands, and Jesus looked at the disciples as they were there all day long and said, Hey, we, we've got to get them something to eat. Go find something for them to eat. And disciples looked at Jesus like it was a madman and say, Okay, how on earth are we going to do that? There are 10,000 people out here, 12,000 people out here. How on earth are we ever going to do that? Do you not find it interesting that Andrew was the one, and John is the only one that points it out, who brings a little boy <laughs> with a bag lunch to Jesus to feed all of these thousands of people. I've often wondered what was going through Andrew's mind. And the one thing that kept coming to me as I wrote this out was this. Jesus, with what I've seen you do with Peter, knowing what I know, because you know and I know that you know your siblings the best, with what I've seen you do with Peter, I've got to believe you can do something with this bag lunch with all of these thousands of people. If you're one of those people that sees what no one else sees, if you're one of those people who see potential when no one else does, God bless you and use that gift for the glory of God. Every one of us, I'm sure, have people in our lives, and I've even given you a blank this morning to maybe write a name in there, uh, of someone in your life who you know has amazing potential. Could be one of your children, could be your mate who doesn't believe in themselves, could be a friend at work, could be a co-worker, could be a neighbor, could be one of the children that you minister to or one of the young adults that you minister to on a regular basis that you know has amazing potential and they just need someone to encourage them, someone to bring it out of them, someone to believe in them. If you're one of those people who has someone in your life that you can encourage and encourage them to bring out that inner potential. God bless you like crazy and use that gift for the glory of God. Don't ever deny it. Don't ever put it under a bushel. But use it. On another note, 
If you're one of those who believe that you can't be used by God and that you've messed up way too many times to have God use you in any way, keep Peter in mind. Because remember, we need to remember that God sees what no one else sees. And sometimes what no one else could ever imagine possible, God sees and can use in amazing ways. 1 Peter chapter 1. Take your Bibles out, turn open to it, as we begin to explore this morning just the first two verses. While you're turning there, I just want to share with you a couple of things so you at least know the context of the next number of months together. We're going to deal with every single chapter of First and Second Peter, but not necessarily every single verse. So I want to let you know that right up front. What, what I've asked God to do, and, and I'm asking you to pray that way, that over those weeks together, that God will help me do what I believe He's done in these very first two verses, and that is bring some practical application out of some really powerful truth. So that we don't see it just as black words on a white page, but that we see that the Word of God is living and alive and can speak to me today. And, and I can walk through it and take it home and I can look at sections of Scripture that maybe just seem like an introduction to something and find out there is some amazing truth that God wants to teach me out of that. The third thing I want you to remember is that it, I'll do my best to be in order, but there will be a couple of times through the next few months that We'll take things a little bit out of order in those first few chapters and talk about them at specific times. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I love how he identifies himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the providences of Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now the first thing you notice in this is that Peter identifies himself right up front. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was one sent. One sent by Jesus to do a specific ministry. An apostle represented Jesus as an ambassador represents a nation or represents the president of the one sending Peter knew right up front, I am a representative of Jesus. Personal representative of Jesus. And how people responded to Peter was going to be a reflection at times of how they responded to Jesus. Do you realize the weight of that for all of us? When we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a Christian, not because you're in a Christian nation or go to a Christian church, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a representative of Jesus everywhere you go. And many times people will form an opinion about Christianity based on what they see in your life, based on what they see in my life. That's why I'm sure you've heard all down through the ages that Christians are some of the best witnesses for what Christianity is all about and sometimes the worst witnesses for what Christianity is all about. How many times have you had someone say, if that's a Christian, that's what I want to be? If Jesus can do that much in that person's life, I'm going to follow that Jesus. And I'm sure you've heard others say, if that's a Christian, no, I don't want to be one. Christianity can be the best testimony. You and I can be the best testimony for Christianity, or we can be the worst. But I'm telling you, if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, you represent him everywhere you go. Not just on Sunday morning, but every day of the week, every place you find yourself, you're a representative of Jesus. And many people will form their opinion about Christ based on what they see in you. 
Now, unlike other books in the New Testament where authorship may be somewhat in question or not even stated like the book of Hebrews, there's little question here. Peter is the author. <laughs> but that doesn't mean some haven't tried to come up with another conclusion. One interesting argument, one of the commentators that I was reading this last couple of weeks said that Peter's Greek wasn't good enough to be done by an ordinary fisherman. If this really is Peter, the Greek in this, you know the Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, Greek, this Greek isn't good enough to be written by an ordinary fisherman. One verse they used as proof of that is found in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were being arrested after healing the lame man on their way to church and for preaching so powerfully and boldly about the resurrection of Jesus. The Jewish leaders identified these two when they looked at Peter and John and said, what is the deal with them? They're unschooled and ordinary men. King James Version said, unlearned and ignorant men. But to be honest with you, it was really only an admission that Peter and John didn't go to their schools. It's not proof that they were ignorant at all. It's almost like someone from an Ivy League school like Harvard or Princeton or Yale looking down at someone because they went to community college. You, you, you get what I'm saying? It's kind of how they're looking at these guys here. It's maybe not exactly the same, but I hope you get my point. I hear it in the tone of kids all the time when they talk about BC3. When I ask them, where are you going to school? Well, I, I just go to BC3. BC3 is a great school. Don't let anyone ever look down on you based on your education or your background or if you didn't go to college at all. In a similar way, we need to be very careful that we don't do that with others. I've noticed down through the years when we Americans go on missions trips to various countries, especially to third world countries, that some, not all, and maybe only a couple or a few, have a tendency to Look down at people who are in those third world countries because they're not as intelligent as we Americans. I've seen it on a number of occasions because I've spent most of my time in Africa. Sometimes people look that way only to find out that most of the people that I'm dealing with in Africa know three languages, French, a tribal language, and English, and I don't really do well in English. I remember sitting one time at a meal with an African couple came to find out that both of them had two earned doctorates in fields that I had only heard little of. I hear people all the time putting down migrant workers who come from other countries, uh, putting them down because they're not as intelligent as us, only to find that many of them can speak two languages, and most of us only one. Second thing you'll notice in this section of Scripture in verse 1 is who it's written to. To exiles scattered throughout the providences of Pontia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. A few fascinating things about that particular phrase. One is that their scattering came as a result of a persecution first identified in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, as Acts, it says, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and all were, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It follows up on the heels of the stoning of Stephen and Paul, the first apostle, later identifying himself as an apostle of Christ, who was named Saul, was contributing to that. And it says at that moment or on that day, a great persecution rose out. Now, what's interesting, and I have in your sermon notes about that, is Jesus gave his disciples a very clear command in Acts 1.8 and Matthew chapter 28. Acts 1.8, he says, you're going to receive power, and I want you to Take this and be a witness of mine in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, everywhere you go. 
I want you to take this gospel message to the ends of the earth. It says the same thing in Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. When the Spirit of God landed on them, Peter undergoes an incredible spiritual transformation. Now instead of being the guy who says the first thing that pops into his head, even if it's not the best thing, now empowered by the Spirit of God, he knows exactly what to say and he says it with power. So much so that thousands came to faith in Christ that day. The church was born. It was an awesome thing to be a part of. Acts chapter 2 describes it when it said those who accepted the message of Jesus were baptized. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They loved being together. They had fellowship with one another. Everyone was filled with awe of the many wonders <coughs> and signs that the disciples were sharing. And everything in common, they broke bread with each other. It was a great church to be a part of. No one wanted to leave. No one wanted to go to those other places that Jesus had said for them to go. And they kind of all stayed there. It was just great to have church all the time. But it wasn't going to fulfill God's command of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the process got accelerated in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Persecution broke out and everyone scattered. Have it in your notes. Sometimes God does use difficult circumstances to get our attention. Sometimes when God calls us to do something or to develop in a certain area, every once in a while God uses circumstances to deepen that area in our life, to bring us to a point of recognizing maybe I'm not where I need to be and maybe I need to deepen my walk with God. Maybe every once in a while some of these circumstances are meant to teach me some of those things. It doesn't always happen that way. And every difficult circumstance isn't punishment from God that many people may believe. Scripture said it rains on the just and the unjust. But sometimes we can get comfortable in our situations and sometimes comfortable in our faith. And at times God brings or allows things to come our way and deepen our faith and our trust in Him. In your sermon notes, you're going to notice over the next number of months together that one of the predominant themes that stand out again in 1 Peter over and over and over again is the concept of suffering. It's one of those areas that we would love to avoid, but it's a part of life. And to be really honest with you, it happens to some way more than others. If you've been around long enough in life, you know that there are some people that seem to go through difficult circumstances constantly and continually and some just kind of get through life unscathed. And some go through really, really deep waters. And if we're really honest, it is one of the issues that we would love to avoid. I still to this day at my age have a hard time singing all of the words of blessed be your name. Gives and takes away, yet I'll choose to say that's okay. Blessed be your name. If we're really honest, we sing the words because they're on the screen. But sometimes that's really hard to... To, to live out. He gives and takes away. But yet I'll choose to say, blessed be your name. One of the best gifts that I could ever give you this fall is coming September the 16th. Write it down, right? Somewhere in your sermon notes, September 16th, don't you dare miss church. Write that beside it. Write that beside your spouse's notes. Don't you dare sleep in. <laughs> you don't want to miss church September the 16th. Pastor is coming to speak to us that day. His name is John Stumbo. John's a good friend of mine. He's been through some of the deepest waters I've ever imagined. One time, vice president of the Christian Missionary Alliance, pastor of one of the largest churches in Messina May. 
Went through an unknown illness for over two years. Had to step down from almost all of his ministries. And a number of points thought he was going to die. Thousands of people gathered and prayed. I prayed. Many others prayed in gatherings like this, in large gatherings. And yet at those moments, John was not healed. God has brought him through and out the other side. He's been an interim pastor on a number of occasions and now decided that God has this next chapter of his life where he comes and speaks to churches about what he's gone through. And one of the things that, that he said to me when we were talking about this, he said, the Alliance has incredible theology on healing, but we have no theology on suffering. And it's one of the things that many of us have to go through. We can blame it on Satan. It always isn't that way. We can blame it on circumstances, and it may be. But to be honest with you, it is one of the subjects that we would rather avoid because it's incredibly difficult to remain stable and solid in the midst of it. We wish God would use something else to shape us and mold us into becoming like his son. But sometimes, in many occasions, for many people, it is through the process of suffering that he shapes us the best. And John speaks about that. His book is called An Honest Look. John speaks about that better than anyone I've ever, ever heard. This is an incredibly powerful story on what God wants to teach you at times through suffering. Another thing you'll notice in this particular context, one of the commentators pointed out, was the flow of the names described in verse 2. He said the names that are in this context here in verses 1 and 2 describe a travel route followed by the bearer of the letter of Peter as he traveled throughout Roman providences of Asia Minor. That route meant that all the major centers of Christian influence in Asia Minor would be reached by this letter and copies could have been made at each stop and distributed to some of the smaller churches in neighboring cities. I tell you for this point. Do you have any idea how valuable the Word of God must have been to them? And how easy it could be for us to take the Word of God for granted when it's so readily available. Can you imagine how valuable the Word must have been to them when they had to wait for it to come through a messenger and wanted to make sure they were there that day when the messenger came and then heard what Peter had to say about his experience with Jesus and how it changed his life and how easy it is for us because there are so many sources available to us to take the Word of God for granted. Now, how valuable it must have appeared to them. <coughs> John Bechtel is one of my favorite missionaries in all the CNMA. Here a number of years ago, ministered in China and all over Southeast Asia and shares a story that I'll never forget. I heard it 20 years ago. Of going one time to a Chinese prison and one of the people that he met who was cleaning the prison toilets had desperately wanted more than anything else the Word of God, but couldn't have it. John, knowing that they couldn't take it in as, as it was, tore out certain sections of it, and every time he went back to visit in that prison, he gave her a piece of that Word. He would give her a chapter or a book at a time, and she would put it together, and 
one of the images that John continued to describe over and over again at every single time he brought to that dear lady cleaning out toilets in a Chinese prison sections of scripture, she would take it and hold it to her chest and just go back and forth saying, precious, precious, precious. It's so easy for us to take the word of God for granted because it's so often in front of us or around us, and we sometimes don't even remember where it's at. The Word of God is life to the dying, light to those who cannot see. It is bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty. It can be your greatest friend. It is powerful enough to see inside the human soul and examine it like nothing modern medicine has ever devised. It can give you guidance when you have no idea which way to go. It can keep you from going down the path of destruction from which there is no return. The Word of God is your most valuable possession. Don't ever, ever take it for granted. It even comes in translations that look like this. For those of us who hunt. Enormous theological discussions in your sermon notes have centered around the subject of verse 2. Subject of God's elect chosen according to the foreknowledge of God that's laid out there in verse 2. And I have it in your sermon notes. It usually falls in one or two camps. That, and one is that God knows who will accept his invitation into his family and who will reject it. Another is that God has predetermined who will be saved and those who won't be. Created some to be saved and some who would be lost. And he's the one who chooses who will be in his family, usually based on a verse like John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And you know and I know that we can have a verse that really applies to almost every situation in any situation. My wife and I spent our anniversary on a number of occasions in Holmes County, Ohio, the largest population of Mennonite and Amish in the United States. We love the quietness and the solitude and all the shops, and we just have a blast took a tour of one of the Amish homes, and she was explaining some of the things that they really adhere to in Scripture. And she made an interesting statement, which always has proved my point, that so many times we can have a verse that makes us say anything. She said, do you ever know why the Amish do not have hair on their upper lip? And I've always wondered that. I always see the beard, but no hair on their upper lip. There's a verse in Leviticus that says no hair on your upper lip, so they have no hair on their upper lip. You have a verse that says anything, and you can adhere to that. That's why I always say the Scripture isn't a verse, it's a book. It's an incredible story filled with verses and stories and illustrations of how to apply the Word of God. We've got to be careful how we use it and the conclusions we draw. One of the things you'll notice in this context here is that there are many that fall in one of those two camps. The topics of election and predestination have been hot topics for centuries and have the potential to divide churches and denominations. Some denominations build their whole theology around that subject, and some, of course, think they're the only ones that are the elect of God. The thought that God has already chosen who's in and who's out doesn't fit with so much other as Scripture. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who believe that God chooses some to be in and some to be out negates the effort of missions and why we do what we do in the CNMA. One of the best commentators I found this week, Wayne Gruden, talks about 1 Peter. He says defined or destined according to the foreknowledge of God refers more than just simply God knowing a fact but that his knowing people is with a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge. 
According to the foreknowledge is according to God's fatherly care. Before the foundation of the world were made, I knew where you'd be. Essentially, in this context here, their, their status, their circumstances, their environment were known by God. To me, I draw this incredibly practical application. God is completely aware of every situation you face. God is completely aware of every circumstance you're in. God is completely aware of every situation that you find yourself in. Nothing slips through God's fingers. Sad to say that there are many times that people text me and before I, I remember to get back to answer that thing, it's already gone because somebody else has come and and, and many times it happens with emails. My screen is one, and I'm sure yours is as well, that after a while they just disappear, right? They continue to progress upwards or downwards, however yours goes. And after a while, if I didn't answer that, I, I forget to get back to it. And many people get upset. You didn't answer my text. You didn't answer my email. And, and many times it either I didn't know what to say or I forgot about it or it slipped by my knowledge. But I just need to simply say not one thing you'll ever face, not one circumstance you're in, not one situation you have to deal with ever slips by the fingers of God. It never slips by the knowledge of God. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what you have gone through. He knows exactly what you're going to go through. I love that. Even if I don't like the circumstance, even if I don't like the situation, even if I wish you would do it to somebody else or take someone else through that process or maybe spare me a little bit, I love the fact that I know that God knows exactly where I'm at. He knows exactly what I'm going through. He knows exactly how difficult my life may be at certain times. And he knows exactly what it's going to look like in the future. I don't know about you, but that gives me amazing reassurance. That it never, ever, ever slips his mind. And God's not in heaven saying, why didn't somebody tell me they were going to go through that? I wish I'd have known. He knows exactly where you're at. I have some amazing verses. I, one of my favorite is in Psalm 139. You have searched me, God, you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out, my lying down, you're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. This knowledge is too wonderful for me to attain. Where can I go? If I go from your presence, I know that you're there. If I go to the heavens, there you are. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even in the darkness it won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame wasn't hidden from you. When I was made in a secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed body. All the days are ordained for me, written in your book, and not one of them, or before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. And that's just one section of Scripture that over and over again says God knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through. If he cares for the sparrows of the field, how much more will he care, as Jesus said, for you and I? You want to know how valuable you are? You want to know how valuable you are? 
Look at the extent to which God goes to bring salvation to you and I. Look at verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to Christ, sprinkled with His blood. One of the only sections of Scripture where all three members of the Trinity are identified and talked about, all three members of the Trinity were involved in bringing salvation for you and I. That God loved you before the foundation of the world. God knew that you would be on this planet. God devised a plan before the beginning of time to send forth His Son. The Son was willing to do that. They made the decision together before the foundation of time that you and I would know not the followings of God. We wouldn't know which way to go. We wouldn't know where to turn. We wouldn't be able to do it on our own, but God, before the foundation of the world, devised a plan that you and I could be rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ and that the Spirit of God would be involved in drawing us in and then setting us apart, which is what sanctifying is all about, setting us apart so that we can become more and more like Christ, less and less sin in our life, more and more like Jesus. You want to know how valuable you are? The Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is involved in bringing salvation to you and I. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel pretty special. That God loves me that much. That the entire Trinity would be involved in bringing salvation to me and making me more and more like Christ until I see Him face to face. That's amazing. And this is only two verses. He closes verse 2 with the phrase, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peace is a predominant theme in the old blessing. It's a predominant Old Testament blessing, and grace is a predominant New Testament blessing. Peace for the Jewish population, shalom, was something they looked forward to from the beginning of their existence till the end of time. And grace to the Gentiles is amazing that we're grafted in, that we get all the benefits that we have read about from the beginning of time that the Jewish nation has because of their God's love for them and choosing of them. And now we Gentiles, those of us who are far off, strangers, alienated from God, now have the opportunity to be grafted into the family of God and receive all the blessings of the Trinity. He says, may all that be yours in abundance, overflowing. That's why he's going to say in Second Peter, God's given you everything you'll ever need for life and godliness. More than you can imagine, sometimes more than you can contain. All because he loves you and I that much. I don't know about you, but this charges me up because that's only two verses. <laughs> Out of all of this truth that God has for us in his word, don't ever, ever, ever take it for granted. God, thank you for your word. Heaven and earth will pass away. Your word never will. I'm so thankful that it's life, that it's water, that it's weariness when, we, when we're weary and dried out, don't know where to go. Your word gives us guidance. When we're desperate for answers, there you are. When we just want to have a friend, when we want to be loved, when we want some guidance and direction, when we know we're doing wrong, we want to know which way to go, we know that your word is there to teach us. And so I'm, I'm amazed at these two verses. <laughs> And so I'm excited about, about this series. For those of us in this room that have gone through or are in the middle of some really difficult circumstances, I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you will 
reveal yourself. And even in what we said this morning, that in the midst of that darkness, you will shine like light. And that they will know you're there. May you remind them again that they have not been forgotten. That it didn't slip by your knowledge. But that you're completely aware of where they're at and what they're dealing with. May they this day be surrounded by your love and grace. And may they find a peace that passes all understanding as they focus on you. The wonderful, precious, powerful name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we pray.